So how the Bible came to us, first of all, take, put out of your mind anything you've ever heard about how the Bible came to us, because most of it isn't so. It's funny that we don't often talk about this subject. We come here week after week and we look at the Bible and we read uh, various books in the Bible. And we don't necessarily always think about how the Bible actually came to be. I can tell you it wasn't because a group of people got together and said, uh, as is uh, often said in popular culture, oh yeah, we like those books, those books don't really fit in with the way we see things, so we'll leave those out and we'll just add those. That's not the way the Bible came to be. I want to start off with a Godward focus and take a couple of words that uh, Jason Morsef, who was here, would recognise from the first verse of Genesis, two Hebrew words, Bereshit Elohim, in the beginning... God. That's the story of how the Bible came to us. It was God's design that this book would look exactly like this, like the one you hold in your hand from Genesis to Revelation. Because this book is a narrative, it's a whole narrative, there's a whole arc that starts at the beginning of Genesis and ends in Revelation. It starts with those two first humans, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were in a garden, there was a tree of life there, and there was a great river there, a couple of great rivers in fact. In Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the book, you'll find the same thing. You'll find a garden, you'll find a stream, you'll find the tree of life. This is one story we have here in the Bible. So it starts with Adam and Eve, it starts with those first human pair, and the human pair decided to be disobedient to God. And so uh, at that very moment when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, decided to go in an independent way, there was a fracture between human beings and God. And as a result, the things that we take for granted in our world today, getting sick, dying, came into the world at that point. And it was at that moment where God made a promise. And I want you to open your Bibles. There's going to be some on the screens, but a lot of them aren't. So get your Bible out or get your phone out. Have a look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So at the very beginning of all things, God says this to the person who interposed between God and man and tempted Eve and Adam. In verse 15, God says to that one, I will put enmity, or you will become enemies, you and the woman, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This was the first glimpse of hope. There was going to be a bruise on the seed of the woman. There was going to be a descendant of that woman who would achieve something. He would crush the serpent and he himself would be bruised. That's all they had. That's all they had at that early stage to hold on to, that this life of sin and death, of misery, of working hard uh, and, and by the sweat of their brow, that that would somehow change. So later on we find that a man called Abraham is told, actually it's going to be one of your descendants. And then his son Isaac is told, actually, it's going to be one of your descendants. And then his son Jacob is told, actually, that one's going to be one of your descendants. Now, Jacob happened to have a large family, and that family grew into a nation of many millions of people. And God said, uh, in fact, to Jacob, just turn over to Genesis chapter 49. This is when he only had um, a small family of uh, a bit over a dozen, a baker's dozen at least he had. But in Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob pronounces this. He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, that's one of his children, nor the ruler's staff between his feet until Shiloh comes 
and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So here Jacob is saying this promised one, as God has revealed to him, would come through the line of Judah. So this nation of two million people, God gives them a set of laws. You'll find those through the Old Testament. And he gave them a system of sacrifices to say, there's a coming one coming, but don't ever forget that every day you break the law of God. And so a series of sacrifices had to be made to God. and It would never atone for it. But blood was poured out, and once a year, for the whole nation, uh, an animal was killed to cover the sins of those people. And perpetually, year after year, century after century, they were told there's one coming, there's one coming who'll do away with all this. Then a little later on, we had the prophets that actually said, this is going to be more than a man. So in Isaiah chapter 9, there's a, it says about this one that was coming, he said he will be called Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. And you know very well in Isaiah 53, it says that this one would be a suffering servant, that by his sins, people would be healed. Later on, another prophet called Micah said, I'll tell you where he'll be born. Or God says, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And Daniel says, I can tell you when the Messiah is going to arrive. It's right here. We'll, we'll discuss that later in a few weeks' time in Daniel chapter 9. And then Jesus Christ does arrive, the promised one of God. That's through the early Gospels. <clears throat> he, he presents himself as a sacrifice for mankind. God, in the form of flesh, comes down to give his life. And then he, he leaves, he pays that price. He, he uh, leaves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit forms people together into groups like this, churches, to proclaim the good news of Jesus and to show what it is to have a people who are inhabited by the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, I'm coming back again. That's in the latter part of the New Testament. And then in Revelation, it tells us exactly what will happen. Jesus will return. Things will be put to right. And we're right back to where we were uh, at the beginning of Genesis. That's the ark. So keep that in mind. This is the story of God's word. And so what we have there, we often talk about 66 books, little books making up the Bible. Actually, what we have is 66 chapters because it's one book. It's 40 people writing over 1,500 years, but they're writing one book. And it's exactly the way that God would uh, have it happen. But it didn't arrive like this. Adam didn't pick up one of these. Moses didn't have one of these. Paul didn't have one of these. Uh, the Bible didn't come all at once. It came in stages. And so there's a human side to that. There's a human composition to the way that these books were compiled uh, a few at a time until we have the 66 books that we have here in our New Testament. And I think it's something like the description that, that Peter gives, if you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, about inspiration generally. The Bible, as we said, is written by numbers of people, 40 different people, over 1,500 years. And so there's a flavour for each, each different person. The Bible is not uniform in that way. Peter is not John. Moses is not Paul. But in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21... Sorry, 2 Peter. Did I say 1 Peter? 2 Peter 1 and verse 21... For no prophecy, he says, was ever made by act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the way it worked. Men, individual men, with their own experiences and with their own way of expressing themselves, were told by the Holy Spirit, were given impressions by the Holy Spirit, which they wrote down. And God ensured that his message came through that human being to be his inspired word. So whatever was written is the inspired word of God, but it comes through human means. And I think the compilation of the Bible is somewhat similar. It's God-directed, 
but human beings it was that put it together into those uh, 66 books. Paul says, or Paul says, yes, that the Jews, he says, were entrusted with the actual words of God. The Jews were entrusted with the actual words of God. So these were words that the nation, not only did they have those sacrifices, not only did they have that law of God, but they were entrusted with this sacred, uh, this, this sacred message, which we now know to be the first 39 books of the, um, of the Old Testament. And then I'd like you to check with me Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, because that tells us something else about these words. Romans 15, verse 4. Follow along with me. For whatever was written in the earlier times was written for their instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures they might have hope. They're great words, aren't they? But they're not Paul's words. He said they were written for your instruction. These words, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua, Judges, all of those books were written not just for them, they were written for our instruction. Paul was talking to Christians that we might have hope. So this book, as we say, these books were not meant just for the local area. And some people will think, you know, they were just for a people at a certain time. Now, God's design was that these books would be of eternal value. And they're of, uh, certainly of value to us who are living in this time. So we call it the Old Testament. That's not the way the, the Jews or the Hebrews would have called it. Uh, they often refer to it as the Holy Scriptures, or they use this term, Tanakh. This is a Jewish Bible. Tanakh, they call it. That's because though the, uh, the T, the N, and the, and the K stand for the three sections which they say the Old Testament is made up, up, up with and which they recognise. Maybe the next slide, does that tell us that? So we have the Torah, the Law, the Nevi'im, the Prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. So their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, is slightly different to ours because it's made up of three sections and it's not Genesis to Malachi. It starts with Genesis, but it ends with Second Chronicles. I think there's a list there that tells us each of those segments. So we have uh, the law, which is made up of those first five books of Moses. Then they have the prophets, the major prophets and the so-called minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets, and then the writings. In the writings of the more poetic books, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, uh, Song of Songs, those kind of things, and some of those historical books, uh, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. So that's the way they see it, and that's, that's the way it was. This is only a relatively recent thing that we have Genesis to Malachi. So the law is the first part. That's the first five books of Moses. These were the books that Moses wrote. If you open your Bible to Genesis, you'll see the first reference actually, oh, sorry, not Genesis, Exodus, should I say, chapter 17. The first reference to writing. And you can see why these first five books of Moses were the beginning of what we call uh, the Old Testament or the Tanakh. And what we, when, we talk about, when we talk about the Old and the New Testament, we talk about something called the canon. Have you had that, heard that term before? The canon. C-A-N-O-N. The canon is those books that are recognised as being a legitimate part of the Old or the New Testament. So we talk about the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon. So the reason why these first five books are there, and it, it's pretty clear from Exodus chapter 17 and verse 14, 
says, the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial. Uh, a little later on, we'll see on the slide there, it tells us that there's a whole number of places through those first five books where Moses says, it says, Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. Or at the Lord's command, Moses wrote down this or that. Or Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests and so on. So legitimately, uh, the first five books of Moses make up the first part of the Old Testament. I don't think there would be any dispute about that. Can you imagine if you were there at the time and Moses had brought you through the, through the Red Sea after ten plagues on Egypt? He would brought you water out of rocks. He had been up and got the tablets uh, from God. He would spoken to God face to face. You would seen that. And then he says, well, these are the writings that God has given me. I don't think there was any dispute about that. And I can't see that there's ever been any dispute uh, from those who received these books of Moses that, yes, that is the foundational part of the Old Testament canon. Uh, we know that that uh, often happened over a period of time. So the Old Testament, we might think Genesis to Malachi, maybe it took 400 years. But the act of canonization, of actually accepting all those, takes place in a period of time. So those first five books, or the later prophets, or whatever, maybe it wasn't accepted in all places at all times, in the first five years, or ten years, or twenty years, but gradually there was an acceptance, these are the words of God, and so that book started to be made up. Now we know that um, probably Moses, in rough terms, is around 1500 years before Christ, by about 600, they find a copy of the law in the temple. You remember that story? The king finds it, Josiah, and he says, we've got to do everything that's in here. There was no doubt about that this was the word of God. It was totally accepted. By the year 700, um, something dramatic happens to Israel. If you know your Bible history, that little blue part of Israel, those people got taken away by another group called the Assyrians. So only that little section at the bottom, the ye yellow section, was left. And what they did is they took the people out of the blue section and they took them to another part of their empire. And then they got people from another part of their empire and they planted them in that place. Because they figured they wouldn't have such an affinity for it. It's like, you know, if you got taken away from Australia and you got put in Papua New Guinea, you might not have such an affinity. Oh, I love this place. This is so much my home. Oh, you wouldn't have so much nationalism about it because you're in a different place. So that's what happened. So these guys uh, are called the Samaritans. And so they were pretty much cut off. They were cut off from the rest of Israel. The blue part and the yellow part didn't really see each other. It's a bit like, uh, if, you ever watched, if you ever watch TV and you watch uh, the people in Cuba, what do you notice about their cars? Has anyone noticed the cars in Cuba? Yeah, 1950s, 1950s cars. Why do they like driving around these classic 1950s cars? since 1950. It's because America blockaded Cuba so they couldn't import any more cars. So they're stuck in a kind of time warp in 1950s, late 1950s. That's pretty much what happened to the Samaritans. Whatever was accepted as the word of God in their time is what they had. So up there, that's a picture of the Samaritan Pentateuch, it's called. And today the Samaritans still exist, they're still a religion, and they still only believe in that part of the Bible. That is their, that is their Bible, the first five books because they've been frozen out, cut off in a time warp from the fact when the prophets were added later. So we know from about the year 700 uh, that those first five books were in their entirety accepted. Uh, interesting because you'll note in John chapter 4 
Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. Do you remember that conversation? And he says something about, you guys say that we should worship on this mountain, and we believe we should worship on that mountain. Do you remember that? Well, the Samaritan Pentateuch is almost the same as the five books that we have in our Bible, except that they substitute a Sumerian mountain, Gerizim, for the biblical one, for Sinai. So when she said that, it's because she read that in her Bible. You know, Moses went up to Mount Gerizim in Samaria. What are you guys doing in Jerusalem? So we know that the, uh, the first five books, we know that they were firmly established by the year 700. The next part of the Bible is called the Prophets. And these are those that we're familiar with, Ezekiel and um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and those guys and the, and the 12 minor prophets. Well, how would they get to be part of this canon of the, the Old Testament, of Scripture? Well, the prophets were added, obviously, because in the same way as Moses, who was himself a prophet, they had direct communication from God. Well, that's fine. But you might say, well, there might be hundred prophets that claim they speak to God. I come across them occasionally myself uh, in the Christian church, do you? Who say they're a prophet? Well, how do we know? Well, they tell us they're a prophet and they tell us they've heard from God. But fortunately, Moses provided in, and God provided obviously, in Deuteronomy, a test. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And you might like to apply this test. You can apply this test uh, in the modern world. If someone says that they're a prophet from God, you can test their words. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 22, God says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if that thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So clearly those prophets that were added to the uh, Old Testament canon were ones who passed that test. So there are plenty of illustrations. In Jeremiah, there's one uh, a, a prophet who claims at the same time as Jeremiah. Um, so Jeremiah says, look guys, uh, the southern kingdom, that yellow kingdom that you saw, they get taken away too by another group called the Babylonians. Jeremiah's prophesying, he says, it's going to happen. It's going to happen and we're going to be there 70 years. So don't, don't kick against it. You're going to be there 70 years. So you might as well settle down, have your kids, uh, because that's the way it's going to be. But then there was another prophet, uh, I think his name was Hananiah, and he said the opposite. And he said, forget what Jeremiah is saying to you, two years max. That's what it's going to be. In two years, God has told me the yoke's going to be broken, you're going to be back here in Israel uh, enjoying life again. Well, which one do you think ended up in the Old Testament? It was Jeremiah, because Jeremiah proved to be true. Seventy years, they were in Babylon, Hananiah was not. So these prophets were tested and they were added as uh, the Jewish people were entrusted with these pronouncements from God. They saw that they were actually words from God, prophets from God. The third section is called the writings, and that's the thing. Some people say it's just leftovers. This is the stuff, it's not really the law, it's not really the prophets, so let's put them there. But they actually contain things that we'll see on the next slide. They contain the Psalms, they contain Job and Proverbs and so on. Um, People have different ideas about why they fit it in that way. Like some would say, well, Daniel, no, go back. Daniel uh, was a prophet. Why isn't he in the prophets? Well, there's two reasons. Some say because of the type of literature. It really fitted more into writings and prophecy. Others say that the prophets was already locked off by then. So just as the, as the law was already locked off, that's five books, the prophets were locked off by then. This is what we accept as a prophetic section. And so Daniel fitted into the last section. Uh, I don't know. 
but the, the, these were all accepted in the same way that these uh, are books um, readily accepted. And so by the time of Jesus, all of these books were in place. We know this for a number of different reasons. Uh, so let's say it's finished. So Second Chronicles, as I said to you, is the end of their Bible. So you've got Genesis to Second Chronicles. After that's kind of locked off, that's the canon of the Old Testament. The Jews say, yeah, that's it. There's no more. For 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, um, there are no books added. But there are books written. There are lots of books written, but there are none added because none of them fitted that test. And if you look at those books, those books that exist between the Old and the New Testament, you'll find that they are inferior to those uh, in the... No, not that one, Dennis. Uh, so they are, they are inferior to the ones of the, um, of the Old Testament. Some of them have anachronisms in them. Some of them are quite, kind of magical. Some of them, they just don't fit the test. Um, and it's only the Catholic churches that kind of added those to their Bible, but only in, in very later stages, the latest in 1500, where they categorically said, yeah, this is part of the Bible. So part of the idea for the canon is it's got to be universally accepted, universally accepted. Um, by the church. So, as I said, by the time of Jesus, we know that they, those books made up the Old Testament for a number of reasons. One is, those guys who lived in the time between the Old and New Testament said so. They referred to all of that stuff as being scripture. Secondly, uh, the same in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found, which were a thousand years older than what we had at the time, and uh, they said the same. This is scripture. The other stuff is inferior. Uh, but our best witness is actually a guy called Josephus. Has anyone heard his name before? Josephus was a historian. He was also uh, a soldier at one time for, um, a, a, as a Jew. And then he surrendered to the Romans and actually became quite friendly with them. Um, he became a friend of the emperor and the emperor's son. And he was actually an interpreter. He was a translator for them when Jerusalem finally got destroyed. So Jerusalem got destroyed in the year 70. And Josephus was along for the ride. And according to his writings, he said to the commander, I want those scrolls. When you actually take the place and take the temple, I want the scrolls of the Old Testament. And this is what he said uh, about the, the content. He said, for we ha have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, as the Greeks have, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all the past times, which are justly believed to be divine, and of them, five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind till his death. The prophets, who were after Moses, wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. During so many ages that have already passed, not one has been so bold as to either add anything to them or take anything from them or to make any change in them. But it has become natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem these books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and if occasion be to willingly to die for them. Is that actually what the last line says? So Josephus says there were 22 books. And when we compare our... How many do we have in the Old Testament? 39. When we compare them, as the next chart does, we'll find that they agree. The reason he has 22 is because... Uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations are combined together in one scroll. So they, they're by the same writer. Judges and Ruth also one scroll because Ruth was in the time of the judges. Samuel, Kings and Chronicles are all single books rather than one and two, one and two, one and two. Ezra and Nehemiah, two books. 
same period, and the 12 minor prophets would have all existed on one scroll. So when we're talking about the Old Testament, we're not talking actually about a book. Maybe we have a picture. That's what it would have looked like. The Old Testament for the Jewish people uh, was just a series of 22 scrolls, and they were considered uh, scripture. So not as handy, are they? Not as handy as a, as a Bible. But you'll know from the Bible that that's what happened. When Jesus opened Isaiah, he opened a scroll. They're pretty unwieldy. They're something, I think the Isaiah scroll is something like 25 feet long. Now think about reading, this is just a sidebar, but think about reading a scroll that's 25 feet long. You've got to roll it, you've got to unroll it, and there are no chapters and verses in there. So when you want to find your bit of the scripture, you have to know it pretty well, don't you? Go, no, 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 that's happening in chapter 5. Move it up, move it up. Pretty, pretty amazing, but so much was their um, desire uh, for God's word and so much was their delight in it. They knew it very, very well because they were entrusted with it by God. The final kind of capstone, the, the other thing we, we know about the canon, the Old Testament, all of the books apart from three are quoted in the New Testament. So for us, that's enough for us. Where Paul or Jesus or Peter quote from them, we go, okay, we accept that that's the word of God. But what about Jesus? Jesus refers to this, um, this grouping too. We can find this in Luke chapter 24. Now go back, please, Nance. Uh, Luke 24. Luke 24 and verse 44. Jesus says... Um, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, all the things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now the Psalms we know is often used as a shortcut for those writings because it's the first book in there. It's used by uh, Oregon and a couple of others. So Jesus recognised those three segments, law, prophets, writings. And there's another interesting one you can find in Luke 11. Just turn over to Luke 11. No, take it back, this. <laughs> Luke 11. Luke 11 and verse 49. Has anyone here got a cross-reference Bible or got a cross-reference on their phone? I'll let you think about it while I read this verse, then I'll come back to you. Luke 11, 49. Uh, so Jesus is uh, berating the religious leaders of the time and he says, For this reason, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Has anyone got a cross-reference Bible here? Who's got one? Kath, what cross-reference do you have for Abel? So it'll take us a reference back to that. Okay, now you can put that one on, Dennis. Genesis 4.8. So Genesis 4.8 is the reference. That's where it talks about the death of Abel. What, what have you got for Zechariah there, Kath or Elizabeth? 2 Chronicles 24-21. You see, Jesus was saying all the prophets killed in the entire Old Testament from, we would say, Genesis to Malachi, but actually it's Genesis to 2 Chronicles. 
So that identifies the fact that the Bible that Jesus was using was the same one that the Jews used today and that we use today, although in a different order. Genesis to Second Chronicles. Uh, there's, so there's, there's no doubt about that. So that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is clear. It's those 39 books as we know them, 22 books as the Hebrews know them. Uh, whether you divide them into law, the, the prophets and the writings, or whether you just refer to them as the Old Testament, that is the Word of God entrusted to the Jews. So, in between time, what happened? In between time, uh, there was a change. Alexander the Great um, started to rule and expand his empire. I think there might be a picture on the next one. Huge empire that Alexander took. From Macedonia in the north, that's just above Greece, down to Egypt, and then from Greece all the way to India. Amazing. That changed the world because Alexander, uh, coming from Macedonia, inflicted or imposed the Greek language on his entire empire, which might have seen a pain for those people because they loved speaking whatever language they spoke, but no, there was going to be a national language and it was Greek. And so the great thing about that was that people could understand each other. If you were living on the edge of India there and you wanted to talk to someone in Egypt, not a problem because you can use the official language. So for the Jewish people who were scattered all over that area, they needed a Bible in their language because many of them couldn't speak Hebrew anymore and they want to teach their kids uh, the Word of God. And so the Bible was translated down in Egypt in Alexandria. It was translated uh, into Greek and it's called the Septuagint. That's it. It's a Greek version of the Old Testament. And this, it might surprise you to know, is the Bible that Paul used. He didn't use the Hebrew Bible. He used the Greek Bible. Jesus is quoted as uh, from the Greek Bible, not the Hebrew Bible, because the Greek Bible was known everywhere. And so for the first time, people other than those who understood uh, Hebrew uh, could, could, could read the Bible. So, uh, the Bible's in Greek, but God hadn't finished. You know, you might say, and for the Jewish people, that's the end of it, okay? The Bible was entrusted to us, Genesis to Malachi, Genesis to Second Chronicles, and that's it. That's God's revelation. But we know that God spoke again, don't we? In the book of Hebrews, it says, in the past he's spoken by many prophets, now he's spoken by his son. And so it was God's intent that the canon, that there would be a New Testament canon, we throw these terms around, Old Testament, New Testament. What do they really mean? The Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament because a testament, loosely, not exactly, but is a bit like a contract. And the, the, the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to Malachi are really about that. They're about this covenant, this agreement that God had with Israel. And God said, well, this, this is the agreement I have with you, but he said there's going to be a new one. He said to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel, there's going to be a new one. There's going to be a new contract written that's not written on paper or, not, or tablet. It's going to be written in the heart. And so we refer to the, this as the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Contract that God had, but he had a new contract through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the New Testament was about to be formed. What do you reckon, you, the, the New Testament is Matthew to Revelation, as you know, which bits do you reckon, we, we said in the Old Testament, Moses, first five books of Moses came first, what do you reckon New Testament, what came first? There are no wrong answers. Gospels, okay, any other ideas? 
Elizabeth, sorry? Okay, Paul's letters. A couple of them, right. So in terms of uh, timing, yeah, the Gospels actually came late, Andrew. They actually came late in the picture and were written well after Paul had written his letters to the, to the churches. And the reason is, again, it's, it's surmised, but the reason seems to be that there were plenty of witnesses around to the Gospels. So the Gospel stories would have been told, and if you wanted to check on them, you just go, is that right, John? Or is that right, uh, Peter, or whoever it, it may have been? And so they weren't written till much later, till the witnesses started to die off, and it was important in God's providence, again, that those Gospels be recorded. So the first things that went around were Paul's letters. There might be one or two of them, Galatians we believe to be the first and then there might be a collection of three or four. But again this wasn't an arbitrary gathering together of materials. How did they establish and why were they established as being God's word? Well again you'd have to say that Paul's experience must have been pretty foundational. When you've got a guy who's so intent on persecuting Christians and he turns around and becomes a lover of Christians and will give his life for the local congregation, you've got to say something's happened in his life. And they recognised through the Holy Spirit, and when we read the book of Acts, you'll know that the Holy Spirit was just going wild at that time, wasn't it? And there were people filled with the Spirit and there were prophets and there were teachers. And so they were able to say, yeah, this stuff that Paul is saying is absolutely true. And it had, it had the power of the Holy Spirit in it. And so they gathered together these letters of Paul and they started to read them in the churches. And that was a real test for whether it exists in the canon. That's, is it universally accepted? Not just by the congregation down in Dover who go, yeah, we've got a local prophet. Jackie's written a pretty good letter. We think we'll read this in our church. But this is a thing that as it went from church to church, they go, yeah, we're not just going to read the Old Testament in our church. We're going to read these letters from Paul as well because they are the same God-inspired words. And so it's quite remarkable, again, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and think about, the, think about how amazing this fact is. We've read this verse a few times, 2 Peter 3 verse 16. Peter talks about his beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom being given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking of these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. That is remarkable enough now to say that the, the letters of Paul are scripture is remarkable enough now, because we go, wow, that's inspired by God and it's been accepted for 2,000 years. But this was it within probably 10 years of them being written. Within 10 years, they'd reached such a, a, a um, level of authority that Peter could say, this, yeah, it's just like the rest of the scriptures. So Paul's words were accepted, uh, and then also those others, obviously, who'd been with Jesus, Peter um, and, and others. The Gospels, again, it often revolved around the fact of who they were. So Matthew, that would be accepted because Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. John was accepted because he was a close friend of Jesus. Mark, it's understood, got his information from Peter. And Luke was a close companion of, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Luke was a close companion of Paul. So that's how Luke and Acts uh, were, were put, into the, put into the Bible. So gradually, bit by bit, again, this canon of the New Testament took form in the same way that the Old Testament did. 
starting with Paul's letters, gradually adding those others, and uh, finally the Gospels, uh, John being the last Gospel to be written. But it wasn't universal. It takes time for that to happen. Um, but William Barclay makes a really good comment on here. He says, it's a simple truth to say the New Testament books became canonical because no one could stop them doing so. The power was so much in those books, no one could deny that they were to be part of the New Testament. That's how they gathered steam. That's how they got their credibility. That's how they were read in churches. That's how they were accepted by people who were full of the Spirit. Uh, but again, it took some time. The truth was they were inspired from day one, but it took some time for all of those to be accepted in every area, and not just in Turkey, but in Greece, not just in Greece, uh, but in Mesopotamia, not in Mesopotamia, but in uh, you know, Rome or wherever. And so uh, it took some time. I think the earliest, uh, what have we got? So the next, uh, next slide actually is our last, first reference we have, I think, to a meeting of Christians together. This is Justin Martyr, about 150 AD. And he says, on the day called the day of the sun, there is a gathering in one place of us all who live in cities or in the country, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time allows. A bit like our church, as long as time allows. Can't, can't go over. Then when the reader has ceased, the, the, uh, the priest gives by word of mouth his admonition and exhortation to imitate these excellent things. So by the year 150, those gospels totally accepted, totally read alongside the prophets, uh, the Old Testament uh, information. Uh, so by, um, by that time, we've, the earliest catalogue we've got, and the next slide is uh, something called the Muratorian Fragment. This is the oldest catalogue we have of the New Testament books. This is quite early. This is about the year 170. And somebody wrote down a list of all the books that were accepted by their churches. And as you can see, most of them are already in place. Uh, the Gospels, most of Paul's works, are holding out on a few. Hebrews still hasn't been accepted. James, the two letters of Peter... It's a fragment, so it's probable those ones in, in John are there. In some places, they found it hard to deal with Revelation. So Revelation was very late to get included in our New Testament canon. Uh, but to me, as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, well, that's right, because Revelation has to be the last book. It has to be the last book accepted, because it's a mirror of what happens in Genesis. It's the end of God's story. And so through God's provenance and through the workings of men, gradually, over time, um, these books were accepted into the canon. And so finally we have a New Testament canon to match the Old Testament one, Genesis to Revelation. And for the first time, we have an entire Bible in Greek because we've got the Old Testament, Septuagint version of the Bible, and we've got the New Testament written in Greek. And the Septuagint Bible... Uh, is extremely, was extremely powerful. In fact, the Septuagint version of the Bible, the Jews, as I said, it was a very popular version of the Bible, the Septuagint, the, the Old Testament. But the Christians used it so much to prove who Jesus was that the Jews moved away from it totally. They repudiated it and they made their own translation of the Greek New Testament. They hated the way Christians turned to Isaiah and said, hey, look here, it says a virgin is going to give birth to a child. Hey, that's what happened with Jesus. And so the Septuagint really became a Christian Bible. And the Septuagint um, it was around the time that the Christians started using what's called a codex. That's a codex back 
this. That's a codex. That's basically, I said the scrolls are very difficult, aren't they? When Paul wanted to witness to people to grab 22 scrolls out of your bag, even if you could afford them, it would be quite difficult. But they started making books. And with books, you could put them in numbers of columns. You could write on both sides. And this idea of the codex, if not invented by the Christians, was used by them amazingly. And they started to prove that Jesus was the Christ. And then adding the New Testament was for the first time uh, was a Greek, an entire Greek Bible from Genesis to Revelation for the first time. Around that Bible there is pretty old. That's the Codex Vaticanus. That's from about 380, something like that. Uh, a magnificent Bible for the first time, Genesis to Revelation in one volume. So I can go very quickly from here. How did we get our Bible? English Bible starts with that Jewish Bible. You probably can't read that. It's a bit, a bit small. But here we have the, the Septuagint, only in Greek. Then it was translated into Syriac. That's because Antioch in Syria, the third biggest city in the Roman Empire, uh, also became a Christian explosion. And so Christians wanted the Bible in their language, so it was translated into Syriac. Then um, Rome, obviously, was the world power, and, and when, the, um, when the church uh, went into a Latin phase, Latin became the official language of the church. So in, the, in Turkey, in those kind of places, in the east, they were still reading the Greek Bible. And to this day, if you go to a um, Greek Orthodox church, or any Orthodox church, most of those Orthodox churches, they'll be using a Septuagint Bible. Uh, a Greek Bible, but Latin became the language that everybody had, so naturally translate it into Latin. The problem you had when it got translated to the, into Latin and the formation of the Roman Catholic Church was they said, this is the only Bible. Hey, we've made it. Uh, you know the history of translation, uh, Greek, Syriac, that's fine. Latin, this is it. This is the final word of God. And they actually actively worked against people having the language, uh, Bible in their own language. They hated it. Why? You could put a good reason on it. You could say uh, the reason is because they didn't want people who were unlearned to try and work out what the Bible actually said. They're going to make lots of errors and it's going to lead them, into, lead them astray. If you weren't so charitable, you'd say uh, that it was a power thing. Because when you're the only one that can interpret the Bible, then people can't ask questions. And when you say to people you need to pay some money to get your soul out of purgatory, people go, well, that's, that's what the Bible says. And so it was quite a battle, and we should recognise when we have our own Bibles here, people died to have this language put into the common language. They risked their lives, they died. They were burned at the stake, or they were strangled, or whatever it was, because they were trying to put it into common language. So you have a few bits of the Bible uh, put into Middle English by um, the Venerable Bede, but it's Wycliffe who first translates the Bible into English. But he translates it from Latin, because that's all he had. So really, it's a, it's a translation of a translation. Good, but not perfect. Um, along later comes uh, William Tyndale, and he's the first one to translate the Bible into English. And he is also fortunate enough that uh, around this time, this guy here, uh, Gutenberg, invents a printing press. So with Wycliffe, they could destroy... Imagine how long it takes to make a handwritten Bible. Has anyone ever tried to do one? It's a lot of work. Still 200 around, which is amazing, because they were destroyed. It takes a long time to write one. It doesn't take long to burn one, does it, Elizabeth? <laughs> Chuck one in the fire, doesn't take very long. Yeah, that's right. People were treasured. And this is another thing to do with the canon, too, uh, which I didn't mention, that what happened when there was persecution, 
and they were, people were told, up, told to deliver their books, their holy books, for burning, what they tend to do is keep the good ones. I'll keep my Acts of the Apostles, but I'll give you the Shepherd of Hermas, which is a Christian book, but it's not on the same level as the Bible. And that itself also preserved the canon. Okay, so the printing press comes along. Suddenly you can print multiple copies. So Tyndale gets his Bible out. I think 75% of it ends up in the King James Bible. And then from there on, we, we meet, um, last time I spoke, on translating the Bible. From then on, people had a Hebrew and a Greek text, and they could translate the Bible into English. Um, and that's how the Bible came to us. So uh, if you're a young person here, I would say, don't neglect the scriptures. This scripture, and the Old Testament, entrusted to the Jewish family over centuries to come to you. These things were written for us, that we might have hope. Don't think you only need the New Testament, or you don't even need that. Read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, get yourself a hold of a New Living Translation, and be determined to read the Bible from the beginning. Ask some questions of those around you, because they truly are the words of God. Let me pray. Father, we have been blessed uh, throughout all history because we have, at the end of times, a perfectly accessible uh, word of God that we can pick down from the shelf or on our phone anytime we like. Father, we thank you for those who were faithful in just um, taking your words as you gave them and writing them down for us. We thank you for Moses and the prophets and, and those that came after them, for those careful people like Ezra and Nehemiah that kept a close eye on things, for people like Luke, uh, for people like John, who, who gave us exactly what we need, and Paul uh, and the others. We are so thankful that they are brothers of ours and that the, the gift that Jesus Christ gave in giving his life and shedding his blood uh, means that we can have life. It means that whatever happened in, in our past means nothing at all now, but the blood of Christ has cleansed us of our sins and we hope and we know that your son is coming back and will restore all things. Uh, that's the glory of the promise of the Old Testament and it contained in the New. So I pray for each person here that we might have a new and full appreciation of your word, that we may be, be at it diligently. And I pray that you will crown those efforts with success through your Holy Spirit as you teach us your mind and give us your mind. And we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.